Well, good morning, everybody. It is so good to see you here this morning. If you're joining us online, a special welcome to you. It's good to be back here. I missed you all last Sunday. Joanne and I were in Boston last week, and I had the privilege of running in the Boston Marathon. And this was a milestone marathon. This was the 125th running of the Boston Marathon. And it was, it was incredible. And uh, my goal uh, that day was to thoroughly enjoy every single moment, and I did. And I want to just kind of describe what the atmosphere was like. Can you imagine uh, thousands upon thousands of people just lining the streets uh, for 26.2 miles? In the morning, they bust all the runners out to a small township called Hopkinton, which is up 26 miles west of uh, downtown Boston. So they bust us all the way out there, and then they make us run all the way back. (laughs) And so for 26.2 miles, we ran back into the city. But what was so special was, again, because my goal was to enjoy every single minute, I made it a point that I would look as many people who were there to cheer on the runners in the eye. I would do my best to look at as many people in the eye and mouth the words, thank you thank you. And it was special because every time I would mouth the words, thank you, they would cheer louder and they would motivate us to to move on when we were tired. And I think that the best part of that run was these little kids would line the streets in these little residences, these residential streets, they would line the streets with their parents by their side. And the kids, they would reach out with their hands for high fives from the runners. And uh, every time I saw a hand, I would run over to that side and slap and give kids a high five. And to see the looks in their eyes, like they would look at their mom like some professional runner, right, was giving them a high five. And that, that made my day. And so it was such a special uh, experience. And so, and I kept thinking of Hebrews 12.1, uh, you know, which tells us that we have this great cloud of witnesses. And that cloud of witnesses are those faithful men and women who have gone before us. And they are in the clouds cheering us on. It's like they've given us the baton, and now it's our turn to run the race. And that's why the Word of God says, run the race that's set before you with endurance. And the only way that we can run with endurance is how? By fixing our eyes on Jesus, who is the author of our faith, who is the perfecter of our faith. And so I'm excited to open up God's Word this morning and continue this series that we've been going through called Boundless, a study of God's Word. In week one, we said that our goal as students of God's Word is to simply understand the plain meaning of the text. Every time we open God's Word, we want to know what it means, and we want to be able to understand its meaning so that we can grow to know God's will, which ultimately leads to doing God's will. The one thing that we don't want to do is to walk away from a series like this having filled our heads with all this intellectual knowledge and then it just puffs up our brains. That would be short of God's desire for us. What he desires is for us to know him so intimately that it impacts every area of our lives. And so in week one, we introduced you to a couple key terms. I want to um, kind of recap these two terms. The first term is the term exegesis. And exegesis is the careful study of Scripture to discover the original intended meaning. And so as students of God's Word, our goal is to be what we call good exegetes. We want to be good at exegeting Scripture, drawing out. The other term that we don't want to exercise is called eisegesis. Eisegesis is interpreting Scripture in such a way as to introduce one's own presuppositions and biases. And so if exe is to draw out from Scripture, which is our goal. I said Jesus is to read into something or read into the Word of God something that is not necessarily there. Now, my guess is none of us goes into the study of God's Word with a deliberate mindset of I said Jesus. But it happens far too often. 
And that's why it's always important to start with a proper context. Because if we start with our own experiences, our own culture, our own uh, language, and our own ideas, and our understanding of words and ideas, then what happens is we can easily read into God's Word something that is not there. And that's why it's important to always look at a verse in relation to the verses surrounding that verse. Last week, Pastor Luke talked about that when he taught on the New Testament epistles. You might recall that he said, when you look at a letter, you don't just kind of randomly go to the middle and pick out a word or a line because then you don't understand what that means in relation to the bigger context. Usually when we read a letter, we start from the beginning, right? And so we start from the beginning, and Pastor Luke encourages us all, whenever possible, it's a great idea to actually read a letter in its entirety in one sitting. So, for example, maybe this week, go home and read the letter to the Philippian church. It's not a long letter. So take that letter and just read it from start to finish so you get a good idea of the context. And so, especially with the New Testament letters, it's always important to read verses in relation to the surrounding verses. And that goes for any book of the Bible. Now, it's safe to assume that most of us here are not native to Hebrew or Greek. Or there's a sister language to Hebrew called Aramaic. So most of us are not native to those languages. In fact, are you familiar with the, the idiom it's all Greek to me, right? In the English language, there's that idiom, it's all Greek to me. And people usually say that when a concept is just too difficult to understand. It was like me in my high school calculus class. It was like all Greek to me. I couldn't understand the concepts. It was so difficult for me to grasp high school calculus. Thankfully, those years are way, way behind me. But the good news about the good news of God's Word is that it's been translated into over 700 languages. And the New Testament has been translated into over 1,500 languages. And the fact that you and I are reading translations means that someone, or in most cases, some people, had to have translated the Bible from the original languages into what we call the receptor or the target language. In our case, for most of us, that might be English. And so a group of people had to take the original language and translate it into the receptor language. And these scholars did so by looking at what we call copies or manuscripts of the original writings. Today, you can walk into the National Archives in Washington, D.C., and you could actually see the original handwritten Declaration of Independence. You can see the original. But unlike the Declaration of Independence, we don't have the handwritten originals of any biblical book. But don't worry, because we have over 5,000 copies of just the New Testament alone. Thousands of copies of manuscripts of just the New Testament alone and many more in the Old Testament produced by hand. And some of these date back as early as, well, the second or third century. So way, way back then. And so I want to put this into perspective. Okay. And this will be helpful for you English majors out there. Are you familiar with Homer's Iliad? There are about 640 handwritten copies of Homer's Iliad, which is the most famous book in all of uh, ancient Greece. Compare that to over 5,400 copies of the New Testament. Julius Caesar's great work, Gallic Wars. Gallic Wars has a total of 10 copies handwritten. And the earliest of those were a thousand years after Gallic Wars was written. 
Again, we have over 5,400 manuscripts of the New Testament alone. Now, it's important to know that the earliest manuscripts were written on papyrus. Are you familiar with papyrus? Now, I know we have a number of artists here in this gathering. And so you might be familiar with the medium. The papyrus is this paper, and back then it was made out of a water plant in Egypt. And over time, papyrus would become brittle. It would start to rot if it was exposed to the elements too long. And so that's why it's important that we have copies of copies of copies of copies. Because anything you put on paper, it's going to weather over time. Thankfully, today, well, you and I, we have digital copies, right? But centuries ago, there was no such thing, no such thing as a computer, right? Now, I don't know how in the world people survived without a cell phone. I, I just don't know. I mean, we would be lost, right, without our cell phones. How is it that people centuries ago survived without their cell phones? I can't imagine that. It's just shocking. But I'll tell you one thing. Their penmanship was better for it. And I think some of you can relate with me there. I don't know about you, but my penmanship, it has gotten terrible over the years. I'm not talking, you can barely even read my writing. Because, you know, I just don't do a whole lot of physical writing anymore. I estimate, and I'm not exaggerating, I estimate that I write digitally, electronically, about 99.9% of the time. I even take notes on my phone. And so I think I barely ever pick up a pen. So when I do my handwriting, it looks like a doctor's handwriting. It is that bad. Centuries ago, you couldn't just copy and paste. You couldn't make a PDF. You couldn't make a duplicate. And so you had to handwrite everything that you wanted to keep. And these are called manuscripts. Now, stay with me here for a while, okay, because this will feel like a class, okay, but that's okay because we want to be good students, right? And this will all make sense toward the end. The earliest Jewish scribes followed a very strict code whenever they were copying manuscripts. And it's important for us to know this because it'll shed light on how significant these manuscripts were. Each scroll, written on papyrus, had to contain a specified number of columns equal throughout the entire book. Now, for someone like me who loves straight lines, that makes me feel good because there's order and lines and grids, just like my sweater. I just love lines and straight lines. Something out of place, it makes me anxious. So I can appreciate that. And the space between every consonant had to be the exact width of a thread. So they would place a thread, write a consonant, move that thread, write another consonant, another consonant. Not only that, the scribe had to get dressed in the proper scribe's attire before he could even write that manuscript. In the past year and a half, most people went to work, they went to work half-dressed, right? Right, usually it was a top half-dressed on Zoom, right? I saw so many pictures on Facebook, right? I'm going to work! And you see like a, a suit jacket, a tie, a dress shirt, and then shorts. And that's how most people went to work in the last year and a half. But the scribe didn't just roll out of bed in the pajamas and start scribing. No. They had to put on the entire full dress. And they had to use a specially prepared black ink. Not only that, whenever the scribe would come to the sacred name of God, he would change his quill. A fresh quill for the sacred name of God. And then, the next time God's sacred name came up, another fresh quill. And get this, 
the scribe, whenever he was writing, he would refuse to even acknowledge the presence of a king if the king walked in while the scribe was writing the sacred name of God. That is awesome. That is incredible that they would take such painstaking care to write the Word of God. That is how much the Word of God deserves our attention to detail. When our kids, Andrew and Amanda, were much younger, one particular year for their birthdays, their grandparents, these are Joanne's parents, Grandma and Grandpa presented each of them for their respective birthdays with a special notebook. But it wasn't any notebook. It was a handwritten notebook, and each of them, Grandma and Grandpa, each wrote out the entire book of Proverbs, all 31 chapters, painstakingly, neatly, in these notebooks, and they presented these notebooks to their grandkids on their respective birthdays. Here, take a look. And so, here on this side, you see I took a picture of the notebook which was written from Grandma to Andrew. And over here, the notebook written from Grandpa to Amanda. These were written in 2009. I can't imagine how long it must have taken to write out every single letter of every one of the 31 chapters in the book of Proverbs. There's no delete button when you make a mistake by hand, right? If you're on the 31st chapter and you make a mistake, I didn't see any whiteout. What happens? You go back and you start all over again. But I didn't find a single mistake in those notebooks. The Word of God deserves that kind of attention to detail. So why did the Jewish scribes, why did they take such great care, painstakingly great care, in recording God's Word? Well, Deuteronomy chapter 6 verses 4 through 9, gives us the answer. I invite you to turn there in your Bibles. Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 9. And here is the reason why the Jewish scribes took such great care with God's holy word. In Deuteronomy 6, starting in verse 4, it says this, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. These commandments that I give you today are to be on your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road and when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. What you have here... It's known as the Shema, S-H-E-M-A. This is the Jewish confession of faith. God's word was to be passed on from generation to generation. Did you know that the greatest legacy that you and I can leave for the next generation is our faith? That's the greatest legacy we can leave. Sure, it's great to work hard. Sure, it's great to provide a nice house, good clothing, great environment. But the greatest legacy that we can pass on is our faith. This entire series, in fact, every series we teach, has as its goal for us to become more like Jesus so that we can pass down our faith. Our short-term goal, our mid-term goal, our long-term goal is always the same. You know, when people ask me, so what do you want life to look like in five years? What's your five-year plan, 10-year plan? I just say, you know, I just want to be like Jesus. If that's your answer, 
That's the best answer you can give. I just want to be like Jesus. And thankfully, we have all that we need in the Word of God to be like Jesus. And now more than ever, we have God's Word available to us in so many different forms and modes and versions and languages and translations. Now, speaking of translations, I imagine we have different translations represented here this morning. If you're wondering, the title of this morning's message is The Role of Bible Translation. And this is, a, this is an important message for us in this series. There's a reason why we're covering this particular subject, the role of Bible translation. So, if I took a poll here, there'll be a variety of translations represented here and online. Some of you might be using the New International Version, the NIV. And by the way, if you're not sure which version you're using, just look at the cover or maybe the, the section, the spine, thank you. Thank you. Look at the spine or open it up. And so you can find the version of your Bible or the translation. So some of you are using the New International Version. Others, you might be using the English Standard Version, the ESV. And by the way, you'll start to kind of understand a lot of these abbreviations as we talk more about it. Others of you, you might be using the New American Standard Bible, abbreviated the NASB. Some, you might be using the New King James Version. That's the NKJV. And I'm sure there are other translations represented here this morning. And if you're using the electronic Bible, then you have all those translations available to you and many more at the tap of your screen. Now, one question that often comes up when we talk about Bible translations is, well, how did you arrive at using your particular translation? Now, think about that. You have a Bible, okay? Many of you have a paper Bible in your hand. It's a certain translation. Others are using electronic Bibles. And the question is, how did you arrive at using your preferred translation? Okay. For some, it's as simple as this. Well, that's what my parents used. And that's all I've ever known. So they used this translation. They bought me this translation. So that's all I've ever known. I didn't think much of it. Others, again, they think, well, well you know, my church uses it. My pastor seems to use it. So that's all I use. Others, like, well, you know, it was given to me as a gift. It was a gift of Bible. I had no choice, so I just use it. And then, and then there are those who have very strong opinions about their preferred translation and how their translation is the absolute best and everyone else's is inferior. Everyone else's translation falls short. And people debate this. Scholars even debate this. So, it'll be helpful for us to, to look at this subject of Bible translation because, after all, we want to be good students of God's Word. The scholars who translated your specific Bible, they refer to various manuscripts. Remember, we have many, many manuscripts, copies and copies, but we don't have the originals, right? We have all these copies. And one of the tasks, now stay with me here, right, students? You're all looking good. You're all staying alert, okay? If you need to get up and stretch, go for it. If you need to do a jumpy jack, that's okay too, all right? All right, students, okay? I know these early classes, they get really tiring early on in the morning. When I was in college, we didn't want a class at 9 a.m., right? No, it had to be like 2 p.m. No, no, that's after lunch. That's too uh, close to lunch. It had to be like 5 p.m., right? So, scholars who translated your particular Bible referred to these manuscripts, a variety of manuscripts. And one of the tasks of these translators is to study 
the available manuscripts and compare places where the manuscripts might have slight differences. These differences in the academic world, they're called variants. Now keep in mind that we don't have the original writings. So it's important for these scholars to compare a variety of manuscripts with each other for their accuracy. Now I'm going to introduce you to a term that'll be helpful to this particular subject. And again, I know it'll seem like you're in a class, but it's okay because you're all good students. The term is textual criticism. Textual criticism is a system used to discover the original texts of ancient documents. This is a term that you see in the academic world. But as Bible students, it's beneficial for us to know this system as well. And by the way, I think it's pretty cool that we're talking about textual criticism this morning in an age where text messaging is the number one mode of communication by far. Have you ever texted somebody in the next room? Because it's just too tiring to get up and talk to that person. Or have you ever texted somebody sitting right next to you? I'm sure some of us have. We've gotten so accustomed to texting as the number one mode of communication. So I think it's pretty cool that we're talking about textual criticism. And as you know, in text messaging, that mode has a language all of its own. So when you're texting, you don't write out, let me know. No. It's just LMK. LOL, BFF, OMG. And those are the old school abbreviations, right? Nowadays, every day there are new abbreviations when you are texting. I think sometimes you need a texting critic to understand all the new abbreviations. And so I think that God has this sense of humor. It's kind of come full circle. So we have texting criticism today. And then we have, talking about here today, textual criticism. And over the years, textual critics have discovered and they've preserved and they've evaluated a large number of biblical manuscripts, both from the Old Testament and the New Testament. As we mentioned a few minutes ago, again, we have no existing original manuscripts. And yet, the copies far outnumber any fragments of any other ancient literature. And so the textual scholar, by comparing all the manuscripts, can determine the original, the inspired writing that contained God's Word. And that's why we can have confidence in the fact that God's Word in its original form is without error. And historical and archaeological evidence supports the reliability of the Bible. I love what this commentator says about archaeology. This commentator writes this, truly, with every turn of the archaeologist's spade, we continue to see evidence for the trustworthiness of Scripture. And one of the most famous archaeological findings was the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls. And maybe you've heard of that term. The Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered between the years 1947 and 1956. And they were found in a place called Qumran, which is on the West Bank. And what is so significant about the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls is that every one of the Old Testament books is found in these scrolls. Now, when the Dead Sea Scrolls, which were written between 200 and 100 B.C., when the Dead Sea Scrolls were compared to later manuscripts, historical accuracy was confirmed. Now, there were a minor number of typos, but that's it. 
Nothing that impacted the meaning of God's Word. There were a few typos, and that's what, you know, let's face it, typos happen when you write so much, right? Even the best editor is prone to having typos here and there. In fact, today, you know, when we think about typos, is it kind of frustrating when uh, your phone tries to auto-correct or auto-spell, I'm sorry, auto-spell, right? And so your phone auto-spells for you, and you have to spend more time going back and manually correcting your phone. It can be so frustrating, right? So even today, with the best of our technology, there are still typos. Thankfully, we have devoted scholars who love God and who are disciplined and who have the patience to study all these manuscripts and compare them, and they give us today's wonderful Bible translation. So, how do you go about choosing the right translation for you? Well, it all begins with understanding that different translations have different purposes. Many Christians don't even think about that. Various translations have different purposes for the reader. And so the team of scholars that do the work of translating the manuscripts into the target language, in this case, let's say English, they have to make decisions on two key points. They have many other decisions to make, but there are two important points that they have to decide on. One is the level of literalness. Okay? When we talk about literalness, basically, it's how close to the original do we want to keep the structure of the sentences and the grammar? Okay? That speaks to the level of literalness. The second decision, decision they have to make is readability. Okay? So you have literalness and readability. Readability answers the question, well, how readable do we want the target language to be? That speaks to the level of readability. Now, I'm going to pause here and say this. One common mistake that people often make is when they say something like, well, I use this translation because it's the most accurate. What they might really be meaning is it's the most literal. Now, stay with me here. Accurate and literal are not always one and the same. Okay, and I'll spell this out here in a bit. Okay? Now, sure, there are, there are certain translations that are more accurate than other translations. But oftentimes, more often than not, when people say, well, I use this translation because it is more accurate, what they're actually saying is it's more literal to the original. But it another translation may not, may not necessarily be less accurate or less correct. So literal and accurate are not always one and the same. Okay, so keep that in mind. So, I want to give you a couple categories to help you understand where your preferred translation might fall under. This will be helpful to know. And I'm going to just give you a general overview because we don't have the time today to go into all the details of this particular subject. But this general overview will be helpful for you to better understand how your scholars of your Bible came to their conclusion. The first category is what we call formal equivalence. Formal equivalence seeks to keep the sentence structure and grammar as close to the original language as possible. Okay? That's why some people, when they say, well, I like this version because it's more accurate, what they're really saying is the most literal. Okay? Because those who uh, have as a goal a formal equivalent version, they want to keep the target language as close to the original 
language. We call this a kind of a word-for-word type of translation. There's a second category. It's called dynamic equivalence. Dynamic equivalence seeks to keep the meaning of the original language intact while communicating words and ideas customary to the target language. So, if a formal equivalence version of a Bible is a word-for-word translation, a dynamic equivalence version is what we call a thought-for-thought version. The goal of the scholars there is to translate that Bible into the target audience's understanding of thought for thought. There's a third category, that, which is not really a category, but I'm going to talk about it here in a second. It's the, it's the term paraphrase. Okay? This is not a translation. Right? So if you have a translation that falls under the formal equivalence, and you have translations that fall under dynamic equivalence, a paraphrase is not necessarily a translation of a Bible. A paraphrase is actually more like a commentary of a translation of the Bible. Okay? And so a paraphrase seeks to take the central message of a, par- a passage and draw it out into modern language and thought structure. So where does your particular Bible fall under? Imagine me being a spectrum, a line. I'll start over here. I'll make my way all the way over here. Okay? So imagine I'm this line. If I am formal equivalence, right here, over here, then examples of formal equivalence translations include, well, way over here, we would have the King James Version, the, the original King James Version. Okay, that would be way over here, right? Because uh, its, its scholars and editors want to keep the word structure and also the word order as much as possible as close to the original. Uh, right over here is the New King James Version. Okay, so there's a revision. It's the New King James Version of the older one. And then right over here, next to the New King James, you have the New American Standard Bible, the NASB. So this is still under the umbrella of formal equivalence. Their scholars wanted to have as the goal to keep the word structure in order as close to the original language. Right here, under dynamic equivalence, right? Their scholars wanted to kind of translate the Bible into the receptor language in a thought-for-thought type of approach. So it's a little bit more readable. Right here, you would have the New International Version, the NIV. So you've got the formal equivalence, the dynamic equivalence, somewhere right here, right between the two, you would have the English Standard Version, the ESV, and then also the Revised Standard Version, or the New Revised, I'm sorry, NRSV. The New Revised Standard Version would also fall right here. Right over here, just kind of next to the NIV, you would have the, the New Living Translation. So, they're getting closer, not, not a paraphrase, it's still a translation, but a little bit more readable, you might say, more thought for thought than the NIV. Paraphrase examples over here. Remember, these are not translations, right? These are more like commentaries or kind of synopsis, paraphrases. You would have examples include the message okay, or the living Bible. Okay, these are paraphrases. So does that give you an idea of where your Bible might fall? If I did not mention yours, just email me or see me afterwards, and I'll give you an idea of where's, where yours falls. Okay. By the way, 
all of these translations that I just mentioned, with the exception of the King James, all the others are actually updates or revisions of former versions or of other versions, right? So the New King James is a revision of the King James. The NASB has gone through a revision. The NIV has gone through a revision. The ESV and the NRSV have gone through, well, the ESV is a kind of a, an updated version of the RSV. Okay, I know these are all like, it's all Greek to me, right? All that to say, we have translations and we have updates, and I will say this. I think it's healthy that there are updates. It's important that Bibles are updated from time to time to generation to generation because what happens is our language changes. The English language has changed. I don't know uh, if I ever, you know, refer to anybody or myself as thou or thee or... uh, I'm not sure which, who does thou refer to? Is it me or thou or thee? I'm, so sometimes I get confused. And so, hey, just hey, you <laughs> or me. So that's the idea that language and culture change over time. So that's why it's important to have updates. Okay. So if you are just so stuck on, I have to only use this one, and this was from this era, I want you to keep an open mind that it's important that translations change. The original never changes, but it's important that these updates are made. And some of these that I just mentioned to you, they've updated their translations with different like pronouns. Some versions have updated using whether it be gender-specific or gender-neutral pronouns in certain cases. Others will use different uh, terms for weights and measures, distances, and so on and so on. Okay? So here is the question you've all been waiting for. So which translation is best for you? Okay, ready? Here's my answer. Okay. Okay, which translation is best for you? Okay. You're all on Amazon waiting to buy your next Bible, right? Ready? I'm going to answer that in two ways. The best translation for you, one, is the translation you'll read. Get a translation that you'll read. And if you're concerned about that accurate, the accuracy of that, just ask me. And I'll give you my thoughts on that. The best translation is the one you'll read because if people just argue over translations and they spend more time arguing over translations when they could have been reading the Word of God, then what good is that debate? The best translation is the one that you'll read. The ones that I mentioned to you, I think they're all beneficial and helpful. They all have their strengths. And yes, they all have some of their challenges and weaknesses. Keep in mind, we have a translation, right? The Word of God in its original form is without error. So keep in mind, from translation to translation, there will be differences. So, the best translation is the one that you'll read. Secondly, here's my encouragement to you. Get into the habit of reading more than one translation. Get into the habit of reading more than one translation. And we have that capability now. We can go back and forth electronically between translations. I do that every week when I prepare for a message. I'll go back and forth between translations. And it's always important, I think, what I I mean by read, you know, get in the habit of reading more than one translation, don't just stay in one column. Okay, I'll go back and forth between the New King James and the NASB, and that's it. Okay, Because you want to also see what a dynamic equivalent looks like, and vice versa. And at times it's helpful to read paraphrases. Now, I will say this. In your daily reading of God's Word, you're going to have your preferred translation, and that's great. Stick with that. Especially if you're going to memorize verses, it's good to memorize on a consistent translation. 
But when you're studying, maybe for a small group, a life group, if you're going to teach a lesson for a class, whatever, it is so important for you to go back and forth between translations. Okay? So when you're reading for your daily devotional, have your preferred translation. When you're studying it indefinitely, refer to a variety of translations. We need to keep in mind that interpretation begins with translation itself. No two languages are able to translate perfectly word for word. Did you know that even those who say, well, I use this Bible because it's the most accurate, what they really mean, again, is most literal, even the most literal of translations, the scholars had to make choices. They had to make interpretive decisions. So scholars make interpretive decisions along the entire spectrum. Today, you and I, we have an unprecedented access to God's Word. My hope is this, that God's Word would saturate us, that this week that you would be even more inspired to pick up God's Word and just to read it. And maybe for some of you who are somewhat looking for a a system, maybe this week, just take a New Testament letter tomorrow morning and just read the entire letter from start to finish. Did you know, again, if our goal is to become more like Jesus every day, did you know that Jesus himself was a great student of God's Word? We don't often think that. We think, well, you know what? Wow, that's not fair. He's God. But yes, he's God. But when he came to earth, he came to earth a man. In fact, as a baby. And the Bible tells us he grew in wisdom and in stature. Jesus studied the Old Testament scriptures. He knew his Old Testament better than even the scribes and the Pharisees knew the Old Testament scriptures. And nowhere is this more powerfully seen than after his time in the wilderness. When Jesus came out of the wilderness, he had fasted for 40 days and 40 nights. And the enemy went to him and he tempted Jesus. And he said, if you are the Son of God, command these stones to become bread. Now here's my question to you. Could Jesus have commanded those stones to become bread? Absolutely. Absolutely, he could have. But instead, here's what he chose to do. He said, in Matthew chapter 4, verse 4, he said, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Now, did you know that when Jesus said that, he wasn't just making it up. He was quoting from Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3. And the context was this. God allowed Israel to to hunger so that he would feed them manna and teach them to trust in him to provide for them. That was the comfort for Jesus after 40 days and 40 nights in the wilderness without food. He turned to the word of God. And then the devil took him up to uh, this holy city and had Jesus stand on the highest point of the temple. And he said to Jesus, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down. Because if you are the son of God, here's what's going to happen. The angels will come, right? And they will lift you up so you won't fall down. You know when Satan said that to Jesus? He was actually quoting scripture too. He was quoting from Psalm 91. But sadly, Satan misquoted that verse. You might say Satan was exercising eisegesis at that point. He completely took that out of context. And so Jesus responds in Matthew 4 verse 7. He says this, It is also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. 
Jesus was quoting from Deuteronomy 6, verse 16. And finally, the devil took him up to a very high mountain, and he showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor, and he said, all this is yours. All you have to do is what? Bow down to me. And one more time, Jesus quotes from Scripture. And in Matthew 4, verse 10, Jesus said to him, Go away, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. This was a direct quote from Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 13. Our greatest weapon, church, our greatest weapon against the enemy is the word of God. Amen? It is our greatest weapon. So let's study it. Let's cherish it. Let's be passionate about it the way King David was passionate about God's word. I'm going to leave you with this one final passage. And after I read this, we're going to pray. I want us to be as passionate about God's word as King David was. In Psalm 19, in verses 7 and 8, this is what King David wrote to his God. He said, The instructions of the Lord are perfect, reviving the soul. The decrees of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. The commandments of the Lord are right, bringing joy to the heart. And that's from the New Living Translation. May God's word bring joy to your heart this week. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word. God, I confess to you that I need to be in your word so much more. Father, I pray, God, that your word has inspired us today to get into your word. Maybe for those of us here in person or watching online, maybe it's been quite a while since, we, since we've actually opened up your word. Father, give us the motivation to do just that today, tomorrow, and this coming week. For those who are maybe in the habit of reading your word daily but are feeling a little bit dry, I pray that today that you have stirred in their hearts this sense of passion that would bring your word alive. Your word is alive. I just pray that we would recognize that and that we would cherish it and love it and be passionate about it so that we can become more like Jesus. We pray all these things in his name and all God's people said, amen.